0: Today's episode of Cold Case Frozen Tundra is sponsored by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace that brings together podcasters and brands on an easy-to-navigate, simple-to-use platform, connecting shows of any size with those looking to sponsor host-read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. It's important to us that we choose to collaborate with the brands and products we love, ones we want to share with you. And that's why we at Cold Case Frozen Tundra are Podcorn users ourselves. The Podcorn platform makes it simple to communicate directly with brands listed in their marketplace, learn more about their brand's history, products and values, and then propose partnerships with easy to follow terms that don't ask us to give away any rights to our show. Podcorn even creates a dashboard for each podcast that allows potential partners to quickly see the information they need to know like the average number of episode downloads and make choices that best suit their brand and their sponsorship needs. So we know we are partnering with a great brand and product and they know exactly what they're getting in return. Whether you're a podcaster yourself or a brand interested in sponsoring shows like ours, we highly recommend Podcorn. Click the link in our episode notes or visit the brands we love section of our website to sign up for your free Podcorn profile and start browsing opportunities. and welcome to Cold Case Frozen Tundra. I'm Matt Hiskis, your co-host along with Dr. Jordan Karsten, into our investigation to find the missing remains of Starkey Swenson. Today's show will have a different format than earlier episodes. As Dr. Karsten and his team prepared to begin excavation efforts at the site we've identified as a potential location for Starkey's body, we wanted to take a step back to share our thoughts on this case to this point, provide updates on new information we've learned, Since the podcast began airing, and answer questions submitted from our listeners.
1: Yeah, that's right. This case spans decades. It involves a number of individuals who are both directly and indirectly involved with the story and relies on personal accounts of the details that don't always line up perfectly. Before we begin our excavation of the site where we hope to find Starkey's remains and with it some answers in this case, we will release an episode next week sharing details on the science and technology of a search for skeletal remains, interviewing some of the experts who will join us at the site to aid in the investigation. But before that, we wanted to take a moment to reset. This case is complicated. And so we're gonna get into that now. And this is Cold Case Frozen Tundra, episode six, what we know today.
0: I think a great place to start off today's episode is by sharing some of the new information we've learned since we started our investigation into the disappearance of Starkey Swenson. As the podcast is launched, we've been fortunate to hear from many community members and listeners who have shared details, tips, and theories they know or have heard about this case. One theory we've heard from several individuals is that John Andrews buried Starkey Swenson on the grounds of the airport in Appleton, Wisconsin. Many have specifically cited he's under the new runways constructed during that time period.
1: Yeah, this theory has apparently been around for quite some time. Uh, We've actually mentioned it in previous episodes. It's possible just like anything else, especially given the ties John Andrews had to the airport and the airline industry as an airplane inspector. We haven't followed up on this theory too much for a couple of reasons. First, the rumor that Starkey was buried at the airport's been circling for long enough that detectives were aware of it during their initial investigation. They looked into it to the extent that they could, but at the end of the day, it would take some very concrete proof to justify an excavation under an operating airstrip. And the Appleton Airport, for people who aren't familiar with it, is an international airport with commercial flights that are operating around the clock. And so that wouldn't necessarily be something easy to accomplish.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's really also kind of the second reason we haven't looked into this theory much. Not only does the information we've received from Jean and her family members provide a more likely scenario that might lead to the recovery of Starkey's remains, but we also don't have the ability really to do much at the airport. If Starkey truly is buried on that site, which certainly is possible, it might be next to impossible to recover the remains without a significant break in the case that pointed to a
1: specific location at that site. Yeah, let me add one piece to that, and that is that Although there were rumors circulating at the time that that occurred, they're probably just connected to the fact that Andrews worked at the airport. It would be hard to gain access to an area at an airport, a functioning one, near a runway that's being built. It wouldn't be impossible for us to look into this with the use of ground penetrating radar, and potentially we could, but we'd have to have an actual good reason to go there and engage in that kind of uh, analysis. And
0: have the airport's permission to shut down operations to an airstrip for a while. For sure, which is not something that is easily done and obviously costs a ton of money. Right. So a second new piece of information we've learned since we began airing our initial episodes is one that requires a little bit of a mea culpa on our part. It's something we got wrong. We've heard from Christy, who's a teacher at Shattuck Middle School, that the covered walkway in the alcove at that school it's the one we repeatedly mentioned did not exist at the time, through several of our episodes. Actually has been around since well before the events occurred there on August 13th, 1983. Before our trip to that site in person, we looked up the site online. Aerial maps made it appear that the walkway didn't exist, even in recent years. But Christie provided us photos, which showed the walkway was present at the school as far back as the 1950s. So, not not accurate on our part.
1: Yeah, I mean, we got that part wrong, but I'm not sure that this particular detail has much impact on the account of the events of that night. The walkway connects the building in front of the school that's closer to the road to the main building behind it. It's the area between the two buildings that creates the alcove space where Suzanne overheard the altercation between John and Starkey. Parked on Elm Street near Division, Suzanne would not have been able to see into the alcove due to the small building closest to the road. I definitely can see how she would have been able to hear what was going on just on the other side of that building in the alcove.
0: Yeah, I agree. And that's not the only piece of new information we received from Christy and her historical photos. We also learned another detail which, I think, does have more of an impact on our understanding of the events of
1: August 13th. For sure. So if you remember from our tour of the Shattuck School site, Loudoun Boulevard, the spot where Suzanne drives after overhearing the altercation in the courtyard and reports seeing John Andrews leaning into the trunk of his car, has an angle that can see into the alcove. But I mean, it's a long ways away. I mean, just check out our YouTube footage when we visited the site. It really is a long ways away. When you're at that location, there's a full football field with room for a track around it. And then there's a large staff parking lot between you and the alcove. We tested
0: the account from that night by having Dr. Karsten walk into the alcove while I stood at the corner of Loudon and Elm. As he mentioned, you can find footage of this on our YouTube channel. While there's little doubt that Suzanne could see John's car from that distance, and she definitely could, it's hard to say that she could definitively identify John Andrews' face from that vantage point. Dr. Karsten in the alcove to me, it was just a tiny speck on the horizon from my view as I stood on that corner. There's definitely no way I could see his face, and that was in full daylight. Suzanne was there at night.
1: The new information Christy provided makes it even more difficult to reconcile this, as she provided photos that show how the school looked before more recent renovations that have been made since the murder and trial. During the 1980s, the staff parking lot between Loudoun and the alcove was only half of its current size. Instead, there were several fenced-in tennis courts, which appear in photos to have either banners mounted on the fence or some sort of ivy growing in spots. Either way, the tennis courts would definitely add yet another barrier, making it difficult to see into the alcove from Loudoun Boulevard. It's still not impossible, and that's for sure, but it would have been difficult. We'll post the historic photos to our Facebook and Instagram accounts for those who are interested.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. And that kind of brings us to one of the questions we are most commonly asked. It really is the most common by a long shot. What do we think of the case, the arrest of John Andrews, and the accounts of the case's main witnesses, Suzanne Eggert and Claire Andrews? And I want to first say that these are, of course, our own personal views. But for me... I believe that the witness accounts are in large part credible. Suzanne's ability to see John Andrews' face from Loudoun Boulevard that night might understandably make a difference in a court of law where there has to be very little room for alternate possibilities. But on a practical level, I do think Suzanne, as John's girlfriend at the time, would probably be able to recognize his voice coming from that alcove. I find her story to be credible, even if individual points have changed over the years as memories fade. I also think that as people tend to look for holes in a story you're recounting, it's only natural to slowly, maybe even subconsciously, start to fill in the gaps in your mind with details that make your
1: story ironclad. Yeah, I agree. I mean, in my mind, the fact that Suzanne recounts hearing John Andrews and Starkey Swenson in a confrontation over Claire Andrews, which we know John Andrews was upset about. And then the fact that she hears the car revving, hitting something, something scraping on the concrete and eventually wood cracking fits perfectly with the very limited, admittedly, physical evidence that was uh, recovered from the scene. Uh, And that includes the gouge in the pavement, the gouge in the grass, the broken tree, uh, and some paint that's scraped in there into the pavement itself. Uh, And So even though the testing didn't really back up that it was John Andrews' car definitively, to me, that story, along with those, you know, physical aspects at the site do lend a lot of credence to to, to Suzanne Eggert's account of what happened the night of Starkey Swenson's disappearance and murder uh, to me. One of the biggest questions that I have, undoubtedly, is if Claire Andrews could have heard what happened that night, as we've brought up in previous episodes, her house is located directly across the street from where the grassy alcove is at Shattuck Junior High School, to me, when you've got two men yelling at each other and a 1970s muscle car, you know revving up to and, and hitting somebody, I, on a on a hot summer night where there's a good chance you get your windows open, I just have a hard time believing that she wouldn't have heard that altercation. And so, to me, I think that raises the biggest questions, uh, like how did she not hear this altercation occurring right next to her house? And then on top of that. Why would she continue to see John Andrews, uh, you know, socially and sexually after he, you know, is believed to have committed this murder? And she must have been suspicious just based on the fact that Starkey disappeared after that night. And so, to me, I mean, those those really raise a lot of questions.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that when you reflect back on the timeline of this case, obviously we've condensed it down into a handful of weeks, but. There's a 10-year stretch where nobody's really sure at all what happened, but those who are most involved with the case probably have, of course, the best sense of knowing what's going on. So, Claire, as an individual who's got more insight than your average citizen into who might be motivated, where Starkey Swenson may have been that night, who else might have been around him, it certainly seems quite plausible that... She'd have some doubts, at least, that John was involved. So the fact that she continues in relationship with him of some kind is interesting and definitely does raise questions. Yeah. And I
1: mean, think about it. We've seen in a lot of different cases, inconsistencies uh, in the testimonies of many of the main players. Joan Andrews, of course, you know, said, well, I didn't clean my car the day after Swenson disappears. Then he says, well, maybe I did. And it was because I picked up somebody with dog poop on their foot. And then he tells other people, well, I let somebody use my Trans Am to haul chickens, which is, you know, sounds as, it sounds just not believable. To me, some of Claire Andrews' own testimony is also not very believable, as we've highlighted. I mean, the fact that she says that she doesn't think John Andrews could have picked Starkey Swenson out of a group of people just doesn't ring true to me. I mean, the fact that we know that John Andrews had seen Claire and Starkey at one of their rendezvous in, in Oshkosh and confronted her about it. The fact that he knew where Starkey Swenson lives and pointed that out to Suzanne Eggert while saying that he wanted to kill him, I mean, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And so I don't know why Claire Andrews would say those things. Uh, it does just seem interesting. I, I don't know what else to say about it. I don't know that that means that she's involved. I don't know that it means anything at all. I just find some of those inconsistencies, her location on the night of the murder uh, to be to raise a lot of questions in my mind.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I will say that the one part I don't doubt from her testimony is really her timeline of the day of the disappearance. When when John comes to see her after she's returned home from her trip, she mentions he wants him to leave, that she might have Starkey coming by and he kind of hangs out drinking beers. And and the reason I think that's pretty credible is that it fits in pretty much flawlessly with Suzanne's story. And I I don't find any evidence anywhere that would indicate that these two women would be in any way interested in coordinating their stories. I don't think that they're necessarily linked in a social setting outside of this. Um, So I I think the fact that their stories fit in timeline-wise very well with one another is a pretty strong indicator that they're both telling the truth or, or very close to it. Yeah, I think you're right. A hundred percent. So Dr. Carson, I'm going to put you on the spot here and ask you the question we get asked all the time. Of course, there's always room for error, but if you had to bet, did they get the right guy arresting
1: and charging John Andrews? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think that the evidence seems to point in that direction. Um, I don't have any reason to believe that they didn't. And I think especially when you start to look at the fact that Suzanne Eggert's testimony basically matches up with some of the basics of Claire Andrews' timeline, Lois Swenson's timeline, uh, and then on top of it, that very limited physical evidence that was found at the Shattuck Junior High School, to me, it makes a lot of sense. Um, And I think even going farther than that, the fact that we see John Andrews in Omro later that night, which is just kind of a weird place to go after drinking beers all day in Nina, that matches up with what Gene has to tell us. And so in a lot of ways, I think that the story is really starting to come together.
0: Yeah. And that's a point, you know, we we talk about it in the the past few episodes, but I think it's a point that bears repeating again. It, that's something that's really stood out to me throughout this as one of the strangest elements of the case. When you're in Nina, Nina's actually got a gorgeous downtown, a nice little center street, and there's plenty of bars like you'll find in much of Wisconsin. There are plenty of bars you can go to in Nina to leave that town and basically head instead of down the highway towards the other city he lives in. John heads the other way out of the city, into the country, into this kind of Random bar sitting on the outskirts of a very small town, much smaller than Nina. It just doesn't ring true to me as something a, a person would typically do. And there's nothing we found in our research at all that would indicate, other than it being, you know, sort of airline themed, being called the drop zone and having a parachute school there, that it would necessarily be a destination for anybody to head to.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, Appleton's near Nina. Appleton is a big city. I mean, for this part of Wisconsin, a fairly big city, uh, has plenty of bars. Like you said, believe me, as a Wisconsinite, you don't have to go far if you just want to get a draft beer. Like you don't have to drive far. You can walk pretty much from any location in any city in Wisconsin to a nice, wonderful bar and get yourself a delicious, delicious draft beer with probably some cheese curds to go with that. The drive all the way to Omro after drinking all day does seem kind of weird. And I think it really backs up the stuff that Gene told us. And I think, uh, uh, like I said before, allowing us to put this all together.
0: What if you could have local, fresh groceries delivered right to your door without ever having to leave your home? With Instacart, you can do just that, giving you even more time for the things you love like listening to Cold Case Frozen Tundra. Unlike the other guys who nickel and dime you each time you use their app, Instacart offers unlimited grocery delivery for one low monthly fee. Forget that key ingredient for your secret recipe? No worries, you have unlimited deliveries. Instacart can have a personal shopper
1: bring it right to your door in as little as one hour. that's right. Instacart lets you shop multiple stores in a single order highlights deals to help you save money, and their shoppers hand-select the products you love based on your preferences. If you like, you can even receive smart suggestions for new items that pair well with your groceries that you usually buy. Instacart's personal shoppers pick the freshest produce and keeps your eggs safe too.
0: Click the link in this episode's show notes or visit the Brands We Love section of our website to use our unique referral code and let Instacart know we sent you. Not only does it help support our show, but you, as a new Instacart user, will receive free delivery on your first order over $35. Instacart, save yourself that trip to the market and spend more time doing the things that you love. You want to jump into some of the other questions received from people uh, in the lead up to this episode? Yeah, let's, let's take a look at them. All right. This first one comes in from Nate, uh, and we'll do our best to leave out people's last names here in case that wasn't something you wanted us to share. So Nate submitted the question, has any new testing been done on the paint or the gouge from the school? And what could it have been if it was not bike paint? And then he adds, I assume technology for that is a lot better now.
1: I mean, I'm a biological anthropologist. And so in terms of testing bike paint and the like, not necessarily my area expertise. My guess is you're right. The technology has improved. But as far as I know, there hasn't been any new testing in terms of that paint that was present in the gouge in a concrete at the school. If it's not bike paint, I don't know. I mean, the analysis didn't say that it wasn't bike paint. It just wasn't a match for paint typically used on a bike. And so it's more inconclusive than like ruling a bike out. Uh, to me, there's, there is an interesting possibility here. And Matt and I looked this up in terms of what the underside of these Pontiac Firebird Transams look like. And they are often, the undercarriage is often painted red. And I don't know that that is what you've got in terms of this gouge, but it could be. I mean, why would you exclude potentially the fact that the car itself could have? had paint rub off that was left in these gouges. I think that that is possible. And John Andrews himself talked about the fact that his car was damaged, according to him, while he was helping a couple of uh, women change a tire on a car. And so I don't know. I mean, that's just me speculating 100%. uh, But I think that that is possible in terms of answering your question, what could it be if it wasn't bike paint? But as far as I know, no new testing has been done on that in terms of the paint that was in the gouge at the school, although I think that it would potentially be interesting. Yeah. And one other thing to add to
0: this real quickly is, you know, in the 80s, it's not like it is now where, of course, you could just email a manufacturer and find out the paint codes they're using. Uh, um, Starkey's bike was a Raleigh, which I believe is made in the UK. And you know, I, I don't know that in 1983, a local police department had the access to figure out a phone number for the manufacturer of a bike in another country and then know what type of paint specifically was used. So on top of all the other issues, there's also probably less ability to communicate about what's being used in the parts of these, these bikes back then than, than you'd probably find today.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's I mean, it's tricky no matter what, uh, especially if you go back to nineteen eighty-three. Uh, I think that, you know, trying to do that analysis and use that as the way to really, you know, put a stamp on the fact that John Andrews was there, that a bike had been dragged across the, the pavement is really something that's hard to do. Okay, so we've got another question, and this was one that was submitted to us on social media. At ELH nine eight seven one says. How important is it that Suzanne might have been too far away to see John's face in the darkness, like we show in the YouTube video? Wouldn't she still know that it was him?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And and I know we touched on this a little bit earlier, but I think in a court of law, it is somewhat important. uh, When you talk about needing to prove beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury, you know, you can say, yeah, this is An individual, John, who has a British accent, it's Nina, Wisconsin, that's not particularly common, but if you can't say definitively, I saw that that was him, and I know it was him, of course, the fact it's his girlfriend and she recognizes his voice would carry some weight, but it certainly adds to the case if you can say that you saw him leaning into his car and you saw his face. So the fact that that maybe is difficult tending towards not being able to hold up might be important in court. I don't think that it's important from a practical person understanding whether or not she's telling the truth or whether or not this happened this way. I do think that in reality, a girlfriend would recognize the voice of the man she's in a relationship with, especially with a unique accent in a small town. And I don't see any reason to not believe that.
1: Yeah, I mean, my take on it is I've got no doubt that if she heard John Andrews' voice, like you said, with his distinctive British accent, that she would have known it was him. Could she have been 100% certain that she saw John Andrews leaning into the trunk of his own car? Uh, I don't know. I mean, like, probably you can't be 100% certain at that distance. And thanks to some of the new information we've got, you know, looking through across a football field, a track, and through fenced-in tennis courts. I mean, that's a pretty tall ask. The issue is she knows what his car is, Pontiac Firebird Trans Am. And if she sees a Pontiac Firebird Trans Am and somebody leaning in the trunk, it makes a lot of sense if you've already heard his voice that that is your boyfriend, John Andrews. But could she know 100%? I don't think that she could. And like you said, Matt, is this really important? I think it raises questions. I think it maybe gives you like a little bit of a doubt in terms of her testimony. But I don't know that it is super important in terms of changing the basic outline of what happened the night of Starkey Swenson's murder. Okay, so Elsie writes to us, uh, if your search ends up finding Starkey Swenson's body, what might happen next? Uh, Will there be a new trial?
0: Yeah, that's a question we've been asked quite a bit, actually. I think there was a handful of people who asked that same question, so shout out to everyone. Uh, We can't speak definitively on this, but I will say that In the minds of the court and the detectives, my understanding is that this is a closed case. John Andrews has served the time for it. Of course, double jeopardy applies, and he cannot be charged again with the same crime. That said, if somebody really wanted to get back at him, there probably are some charges they could lob his way, particularly, and you could speak to this, Dr. Karsten, uh, Methods of disposing or the way you treat a corpse uh, does carry legal ramifications, but I don't know that there's necessarily an appetite for that, but I also can't speak to it.
1: Yeah, I think that this is a question that we don't necessarily know the answer to. I mean, double jeopardy is something that guards people against being tried for what is generally the same crime more than once. And he's already been convicted and served time for the crime. Um, but that, as somebody who is not in, you know, the legal field, I can't say in particular what might the consequences be. To me, you know, when you ask the question, what happens if we find Starkey Swenson and what might happen next? In my mind, the the biggest thing that happens is the fact that his family, relatives, and friends get closure in terms of knowing for sure what happened to him, getting his remains back, and being able to definitively close that chapter of all of their lives. And I think, in my mind, that is way more important than a new trial. Uh, And honestly, it is the goal of the work that we're doing.
0: Great point. So, we got another question from at Schaefery, 1987, who asks I know you mentioned the property in AMRO was not searched in the past and that landowners had not wanted to allow investigation at that site. Why couldn't detectives just have searched that property anyway?
1: Well, to get a search warrant, you need probable cause, and a judge is who decides that. And so at the time, they didn't have probable cause. Now, I don't know exactly why, um, but I can speculate in a way that is fairly informed. I mean, to be honest, all we know is that John Andrews was in Omro that night. In terms of the land, we know that John Andrews was a coworker with the landowner and fairly friendly with him. But being a coworker and fairly friendly with somebody does not necessarily mean that somebody buried a body on your property. And the constitution protects people from searches and seizure. And so because of that, you know, you have to have probable cause to actually obtain a search warrant to investigate somebody's property. And so they didn't have it at the time. And so they didn't search the property because they didn't have a search warrant. And now today, thanks to Jean and her family members who now own the property, they're interested in having the property searched. And so that's why we're able to go to the site and actually perform the scientific investigation that we are, that we're going to describe to you guys in next week's episode in terms of the science behind it, um, because that they've, they've granted us access to the property.
0: Yeah, that's going to be a really exciting search. And I, I think it's made only more exciting by the fact that they did, you know, we have notes, the detectives have notes, but they of course don't have everything that the original detectives had in their minds at the time, or and we we don't know everything about the reason they wanted to search there. But the fact that they did certainly makes it interesting and, and adds to, I think mine, and I definitely think Dr. Carson and his team's excitement about searching that property.
1: Well, look, I mean, Omro is a small town, and the fact that we don't know much about what John Andrews did after he left Claire Andrews' house, the one thing we know for sure is that he was at the Drop Zone Bar just outside of Omro, the fact that he does have this friend right nearby in the area where besides maybe this drop zone bar, he's got no reason to really go to Omro, Wisconsin. I mean, it really starts to, you know, suggest to us that there's good possibility along with everything that Gene has told us, you know, that this is the place to search.
0: Our next question comes from Jackie who asked, at one point I heard the cadaver dog alerted to the possibility of remains in a marshy area but that people couldn't get over to that spot because of the marsh. Does this mean it wouldn't have been possible to put the body there either? How do you search a marsh for remains?
1: Oh, no, it doesn't mean that it wouldn't have been possible to put a body there. Uh, I can tell you this because, I mean, I actually just got done searching a marsh for a body within the last two weeks uh, for a totally different case. You can, how do you search a marsh for remains? You put on waders um, and you go through it, just like we would do a pedestrian search. And we're going to get into the nitty gritty of searching for human remains in the next episode. And there are many other ways to search a marsh. Um, but I can tell you having been to the property a lot and having done preliminary excavations there, uh, and having talked to the family, including Jean and her, her, her family members, you know, I don't think that the marsh area is probably the area that that they think John Andrews was really at when he was, you know, gardening at night. And so I'm not sure the marsh is currently one of our, you know, top areas to examine. You can search a marsh too with divers, depending on the depth of the marsh and dredge it. I mean, there are a lot of ways to go about searching a marsh for remains. I think with cadaver dogs, we always have to keep in mind that they aren't uh, necessarily like a silver bullet. They're not, uh, always correct. Wind plays a role. I mean, they will mark and alert to scents that aren't necessarily a human body. And so, although we will certainly search the entire property, that's our goal in terms of the work that we're going to do. Um, I don't think that it's the area that we think is most likely at the time being. Um, It The fact that it is a marsh does mean it would be much harder to put a body there, to be honest. I mean, you have to think John Andrews, we assume working by himself, uh, has to move a large adult human a long distance. And in a marsh, that's challenging terrain. And that's a very difficult thing to do. And so he could have done it for sure. Um, In terms of people getting to the spot, that's just a matter of your willingness to get into a marsh and move around. And most people don't necessarily want to do that because it's squishy and wet and difficult to move across and hard to maintain your balance. Um, But we can talk a lot more about searching for bodies in next week's episode in terms of the science behind it. Absolutely. So let's do one last
0: question here. Um, This one looks like it's kind of a joke a little bit. Uh, Sarah submitted... Do you think women make great anthropologists due to their natural ability to dig up the past?
1: I mean, at the risk of getting in trouble, (laughs) I would say maybe so. But uh, I'll tell you this, in anthropology today, especially within archaeology and biological anthropology, uh, it's a field that today has very many females in it. In fact, females are probably the majority of both of those subdisciplines within anthropology. And I personally have the, you know, the the good luck of working with many female colleagues who are archaeologists and biological anthropologists, osteologists, cultural anthropologists, for that matter, um, who are great. And uh, I'm lucky to get to work with them. To be honest, um, the majority of my colleagues, who I have who I have collaborated with on research, collaborated with on forensic cases, collaborated with uh, uh, in excavations, have been females. And on top of that, the majority of my students are females. And uh, anthropology is a diverse discipline, and that is a source of its strength. And it's uh, honestly, the, my female colleagues uh, oftentimes teach me everything that I've learned in the discipline. And so, yeah, I think so, right? I mean, women make great anthropologists and we can probably just put a period there, right? Do I think women make great anthropologists? Yes, they definitely do. There's no doubt about it.
0: It's a wise man right there. Nice stop. All right. Well, I think that's about our show for this week. Um, We hope you enjoyed the slightly different format and the conversation. Uh, we want to thank all those who, who submitted questions, and if we missed yours this time around, our apologies. We we didn't want to go too long for you. Uh, do feel free, though, to message us directly, and we'll try to get back to you with an answer, uh, even if we couldn't do it on air.
1: So in the next episode, as I've mentioned before, we're going to take a look at the science and technology behind an archaeological search, excavation, and then eventually the identification of human skeletal remains. We're also going to talk about the different ways that we can hopefully determine whether a body's ever been buried in a given location. And so this will be a critical episode for setting up the scientific background in our search uh, to find the missing remains of Starkey Swenson. We hope that you'll join us next week.
0: want to know more about the Starkey Swenson story, we highly recommend you visit our website or follow our social media channels on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube for additional information, behind-the-scenes footage, and more. We will continue to post insider content and updates as this real-time investigation progresses. You can find our social media pages using the links on our website or by searching for us on our social media platforms. We'd like to take a moment to thank those who helped us compile information on this case, including the Winnebago County Sheriff's Department, Newspapers.com, and individual citizens who've shared their knowledge. Our theme music was created by Mario Cole 06 and is available for download from Pixabay.